Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Richard Deming, lecturer in the Department of English at Yale University, speaking about the silent film Monkey's Moon, thought to be lost until the Beinecke Library acquired a copy in 2008. The recent rediscovery of Kenneth McPherson's film Monkey's Moon is one of those instances that scholars live for. Kenneth McPherson, who lived from 1903 to 1971, has long been considered a pioneer of avant-garde film. But interestingly, most of his reputation has come down through the decades by word of mouth. Because his films had largely disappeared and not really been seen even in his time, McPherson had a production group, which was called Pool which really was just three people, himself, the wealthy heiress named Breyer, and her partner, the modernist poet H.D. All three were working very closely together in terms of artistic projects, editorial projects, and they all had a very complicated romantic-slash-domestic affair. The four films that Poole produced, all of which were directed by Kenneth McPherson, have, as I said, largely disappeared. They produced three short films, Wingbeat in 1927, Foothills in 1929, both of which exist only in fragments now and can be found at the Museum of Modern Art in New York as part of their library holdings. They did produce one feature, which was called Borderline, and that came out in 1930, starring Paul Robeson and H.D. It's a very complex film that thinks through interracial relationships. And so at its time, in 1930, this was very avant-garde and, and daring. And Borderline is perhaps the most well-known of their films. And that also was almost impossible to get. A few prints did exist, but these were found only in libraries and archival holdings. And so only scholars had access to them. That changed in 2005 when the British Film Institute paid for a restoration of the film and released it on DVD. And now it can be obtained in the United States from Criterion. Monkey's Moon, the short from 1929, had completely disappeared until recently. It had never had any real public showing, though some people had seen it when it came out in 1929, rather when it was directed or produced in 1929, since it didn't really come out, as we think about it. It didn't hit theaters. It, you couldn't see it anywhere. And after that, as I said, it completely disappeared. It was only just recently found, more or less in the garage, so to speak, of a friend of a friend of McPherson's. So we might ask, why does McPherson have a reputation if so few people were actually able to see his films? How did that reputation get started? How did it circulate? Part of McPherson's importance and part of the importance of the group Pool was the film journal that they published from 1927 to 1933. This was called Close Up. Looking at Close Up now, it's fascinating to see just how ahead of their time these editors were in putting together their journal. One of the reasons I say that is their deep investment in psychology, psychoanalysis, and Freudian ideas. McPherson and Breyer really wanted to bring Freudian thought 
to bear upon films and both the watching of films and the making of films. The journal published articles by important figures of the time, people such as Havelock Ellis or Dorothy Richardson and even Marianne Moore. And what they were interested in was discussing how film could represent psychological states rather than being just an unmediated view of the world. So in that way, film is about objects, but also about the perception of objects, how we see objects, how we experience things. Now, in close-up, they also combine these ideas with an interest in many of the technical and theoretical developments that were coming out of Russian film, particularly the work of Sergei Eisenstein. Eisenstein, whose most famous film is Battleship Potemkin, which is shown in virtually every introduction to film class in the country, was a pioneer in thinking about the juxtaposition of cinematic images. And he thinks of this in term that he used, montage. This is the idea that if you juxtapose two different images in film, that a meaning is created from that juxtaposition. McPherson, in particular, was interested then in bringing Eisenstein's thinking, his theories, into English. And so close-up was the place where some of the earliest and some of the most important translations of Eisenstein's work from Russian into English appeared, including the famous essay, A Dialectic Approach to Film Form. Now, in thinking about McPherson as a filmmaker, we see his investment in psychoanalysis and in the idea of montage play out in his own films, which is important in thinking about McPherson also, because with close-up, the editors wanted to create a forum by which Britain could establish itself as a leader in thinking about cinema, cinematic theory, and what film might be. They felt that Britain was lagging behind in terms of its cultural impact on film and had ceded too much territory to the German filmmakers, the French filmmakers, and the American filmmakers. So they wanted to create this, this forum that combined elements from all of these places and established a, a strong, clear British identity in, in cinema. So when we look at McPherson, we see in his work two clear influences which bear out the work that they were doing in close-up. These two influences are, of course, Eisenstein and that idea of film being primarily about montage, about images being placed one after the other and meaning coming out of that. One of McPherson's signature techniques is what he called the clatter montage, which is the rapid juxtaposition of a few frames of film to suggest the superimposing of images. Now, he combines that technical expertise with an interest in a kind of psychological realism. The psychological realism suggests that what we see on film is someone's perception, someone's perspective, and that they're trying to replicate perception rather than suggest that this is exactly how the world is. So film, for McPherson, is largely subjective and not objective. So let me talk about Monkey's Moon, the film itself. There isn't much in terms of plot. I mean, it is a short film less than 10 minutes long. 
And the film is really about, if we can say it's about anything, two monkeys who escape from their owners. So this minimal plot allows for McPherson to do a lot in terms of thinking of image. What's really remarkable is looking at Monkey's Moon, and another reason that scholars love this sort of thing is not only did we find this terrific film decades and decades after it disappeared, but it is also a fantastic, in fact, perhaps brilliant piece of work. For instance, the film begins, we see a shot of the full moon, and it's clear that this is probably the first night of a full moon. And the camera then moves to a picket fence with, in French, a sign saying, no entry. The camera moves over the fence and moves up to the Swiss chateau where the, the owners and the monkeys live. It's fascinating the way that that opening anticipates the opening of Citizen Kane, directed by Orson Welles in 1941. Kane, of course, is one of the most influential, most important films of all time. And that film begins with the camera close up on a sign saying no trespassing hanging on a fence. And the camera then travels up slowly over the fence and ignoring that sign and goes inside just as it does in Monkey's Moon. And what's even more interesting to me is I just rewatched the beginning of that film of the beginning of Citizen Kane and thinking about what I would say about Monkey's Moon. And in Wells's film, it goes over that fence and what, we, what it then dissolves to is, in the background, Kane's massive mansion. And at the foreground is a fairly elaborate cage because the character Kane owns, amongst other crazy paraphernalia and ephemera and objects, etc. He has an exotic zoo on his property. So in the foreground, we see this fairly elaborate cage, and in it, two monkeys who are looking up at the mansion back on the mountain that's, or on the hill that's in the background of the shot. It's probably unlikely that Orson Welles ever saw Monkey's Moon, but it's fascinating to watch it now and see that it does seem to be almost an homage or an allusion to McPherson's film. In any event, the monkeys get a bit agitated. We see them in their gilded, nice cage. They're able to slip out and sneak out into the grounds surrounding the chateau. The owners see this and run after. It's a man and a woman. The man puts down his saxophone and runs out. And so we have all of these shots of the monkeys climbing and making their way through trees and over vines, over the fences, enjoying their freedom, as monkeys will. And we see the two owners chasing after them, trying to find them. What's interesting is that the actors who seem to be, we don't know for sure, but seem to be McPherson and Breyer, are never shown completely. We only see their legs, their feet, their hands, their arms, and their shadows. We never see their faces. We do see the back of McPherson's head once, but we never, as I say, see their faces. Because of this, it's clear that we are meant to see the film as coming from the perspective of the monkeys. In that way, we're identifying not only with the monkeys, but as the monkeys. Now, at a certain level, it seems the film is thinking in terms of binary oppositions. With the leashes, the cages, the grasping hands, the fences, all of these are put in tension with the images of the freedom of the climbing on the vines, of the cage being the bad place and nature and the trees being the place that they escape to and have some sort of freedom. And so it would be easy to see this as a desire to think of the monkeys as escaping into freedom 
Now, the film does also make the owners into villains of a sort because we see their hands reaching out, grasping. Uh, They look a bit like Dracula from Todd Browning's film. And of course, their shadows are very menacing. And the, the monkeys, whose faces we do see, do register fear, concern, and tension. And yet, at the same time, we do know that these monkeys were actually the pets of, of Briar and McPherson in HD. So, of course, they did care for their, their animals and wanted to protect them and get them back safe and sound. So it's not so easily broken down to a political allegory because the filmmakers will go on to keep the monkeys. And the question, would they, would they be making themselves into, into villains or oppressors? It's unlikely. Yet at the same time, it's clear that the cage does scare the monkeys. But if we don't think of this solely in terms of political allegory, and instead think of it in terms of relationships, then we see a different matter. Then we can see the monkeys as being in the state of tension, and that the film depicts that. But we also see the, the owners as well being in a state of anxiety or tension. They're trying to get their monkeys back. They're running after them. They're worried about them. They want to take care of them and protect them, even if that means being in a cage. And the cage is actually not so bad. It's part of that domestic life. So this is about various kinds of tension and creating tension in the viewer. The viewer sees the monkey's tension and feels that tension. Will the monkeys escape? Will they be able to stay free? We feel the owner's tension. Will they be able to to get their monkeys and get them safe and bring them back into the house. What further complicates this is that McPherson goes back and forth between showing the monkey and the owners to a shot of this beetle that's trapped on its back and legs moving wildly trying to get free. Eventually, the beetle is able to right itself and it flies away. And it is able to right itself and fly away just at that moment when the monkeys are recaptured by their owners. So we could ask, is this a swap in which the monkeys are free, but the beetle is on its back as if there can only be one free at one time, and the, the capture of the monkeys more or less causes the freedom of the, the beetle. The beetle is able to right itself and fly off. Or do we see this as just another example of creating tension? Will the, as we watch the beetle, we think, will it right itself, or will it be trapped will be stepped on will be eaten or and as rain starts to fall will be trapped and drowned that way so it writes itself and so its tension is resolved the monkeys are recaptured their tension is resolved or our tension watching them is resolved the owner's tension in capturing the monkeys is resolved and the monkeys are brought back to their cages and so all that tension has been brought to a close. So the film is in that way really about the creating of a psychological state of tension in the viewer by depicting or enacting these moments of tension from the monkey's perspective, the owner's perspective, and this beetle's perspective as well. And I just want to say very briefly that one of the things that also makes the thinking of McPherson and Monkey's Moon so brilliant is the way that he is able to juxtapose images that create connections that we might not have seen. For instance, there's a close-up of a of the stops or the valves of the saxophone that the owner plays. There are the shots of ants coming out of rocks from underneath rocks and these holes around the rocks, as well as water coming from a watering can. 
we wouldn't necessarily put these things together, but when you line them up, there starts to be a kind of visual rhyme and that we see the connection between these things as well, things coming out of them, that they're all stops or valves that are producing motion or sound or certainly change. And that's one of the great things that montage can do is that it creates those connections between objects or things or motions that we would not have otherwise have noticed as being connected at all. And finally, McPherson's ability to photograph is quite remarkable. If you watch the film, you see just how strong a cameraman he is in terms of his ability to really frame the monkeys or frame the owners in a way that they stay at the center of the screen, which is very difficult to do, especially back in 1930. They don't have advanced techniques or cameras or or blocking. How do you block a monkey? You don't. The monkey does what it will. But as you watch, he keeps that monkey pretty well in the frame. And so what that does is maintains our attention and makes everything that we see on the screen very particular, very specific, and very detailed. So finally, the thing that's so terrific about finding this film is not only is it brilliant in its way and is also this lost, now refound slice of history, it provides a fascinating link in terms of thinking about film because of the way that McPherson's work anticipates, as I said, Orson Welles or more contemporary avant-garde filmmakers like Nathaniel Dorsky or Robert Beavers and their ability to create very lyrical images out of the everyday out of shots of nature, out of shots of minute particulars that otherwise are overlooked or go unnoticed. So what happens is that we've discovered a link or a bridge between modernist film and more contemporary film that we never knew was missing. Moreover, there is that great degree of excitement that you find something so of its time, so much an exemplar, so much a great example of modernist avant-garde filmmaking that you have that excitement and that intense experience or pleasure or interest in watching this film that you have when you first discover the beauty and the potential of this sort of filmmaking. That was Richard Deming, lecturer in the Department of English at Yale University, speaking about the avant-garde film Monkey's Moon from the collection of the Beinecke Rare Books and Manuscript Library at Yale University.